This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Taming anxiety means blazing a new trail in your brain. A trail that leads to your happy chemicals instead of your threat chemicals. That is hard to do for many reasons. Anxiety is natural. Calm is learned. If you didn't learn yesterday, you can learn today. It's not easy, of course. Once your natural alarm system is triggered, it's hard to find the off switch. Indeed, you don't have an off switch until you build one. Tame Your Anxiety shows you how. Readers learn about the brain chemicals that make us feel threatened and the chemicals that make us feel safe. You'll see how your brain turns on these chemicals with neural pathways built from past experience. And most important, you discover your power to build new pathways, to enjoy more happy chemicals and reduce threat chemicals. This book does not tell you to imagine yourself on a tropical beach. That's the last thing you want when you feel like a lion is chasing you. Instead, you will learn to ask your inner mammal what it wants and how you can get it. Each time you step toward meeting a survival need, you build the neural pathways that expect your needs to be met. You don't have to wait for a perfect world to feel good. You can feel good right now. The exercises in this book help you build a self-soothing circuit in steps so small that anyone can do it. Once you learn how it's done and how it can help ease your anxiety, you will learn how to handle situations in which you feel threatened or anxious. Understanding the underlying mechanisms will help you stop them before they get ahead of you. Valeria Tellis interviews Dr. Loretta Bruning, the author of Tame Your Anxiety, Rewiring Your Brain for Happiness. Dr. Loretta Bruning is founder of the Inner Mammal Institute and author of Habits of a Happy Brain, Retrain Your Brain to Boost Your Serotonin, Dopamine, Oxytocin, and Endorphin Levels. As Professor of Management at California State University and as a parent, she lost faith in prevailing views of human motivation. Her search for answers led to studies of the brain chemistry we share with earlier mammals. Suddenly, everything made sense and she began creating resources to help people manage their inner mammal. The Inner Mammal Institute offers videos, books, podcasts, multimedia, and a training program to help you make peace with your inner mammal. Meet Dr. Loretta at innermammalinstitute.org. Here is the interview with Dr. Loretta Bruning. words. Who is Loretta Bruning? Well, now I'm a grandma. <laughs> um, and, and that's very exciting. But 
uh, I guess a big highlight of my life was that I got to take early retirement when I turned 50. I had been a college professor for 25 years. And that's when I sort of freed myself to follow the research on human emotion and human motivation wherever it took me rather than to sort of confine myself to the dogma and expectations of any individual profession. Thank you for the wonderful work you do exploring these fields of the brain, the body. So I have lots of questions for you about your latest book, Tame Your Anxiety. That'll be the second section of the interview. Something just came to mind, um, feelings and emotions, are they the same? Or Well, this already gets back to uh, the academic definition versus um, what I use. So yeah. I use them as the same thing. And in academia, they make a distinction between your conscious awareness of a feeling and the physiology. Right. And um, I don't make that much of a distinction because I think um, it goes together yeah. and such a huge part of it is the physiology. And I think that the philosophical, nice w words that we put on our feelings um, often distract us from what's really going on. What insights you have gained from the events in 2020? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I was always quite independent. I grew up with a lot of um, stress around me, yeah. and I learned to disconnect from the stress around me. Yeah. So I was basically just doing what I always did, which is um, following my own um, goal-seeking uh, path, and ignoring other people's hysteria. And so in that sense, I was doing what everybody else was doing, I think, because everybody else was just <laughs> repeating old behavior because that's what the brain does. And that's why it's funny that um, the situation affected one person in one way and another person in another way. And each person often used the pandemic to justify the patterns that they already revert to. <laughs> And of course, I was doing that too. So I, I was working a lot, but then I had already learned by by my advanced age to um, take a lot of breaks and also to not feel guilty about not following the herd. Because I used to feel guilty that I was um, somehow being disloyal or unsociable. But now I, I just realized that I'm not a herd animal, I'm a human, and I make individual decisions about when to follow the herd. Thank you, Loretta. That's a great example. And, and I should, I should uh, mention that my husband and I love to travel. So in the past, we traveled a lot. Um, and when that was gone, I really missed that. And so after two months went by, somebody told me, uh, another way of interpreting the statistics. And I sort of lost my belief in the hysterical media narrative around the statistics. And I took my first short trip, and that went fine. And so I took another short trip, and that went fine. And so I took another and another. What do you think, or what is at this time the purpose of your life? The purpose of my life? Well, yeah. um, 
I'm always looking for a better way of explaining my insights about the inner mammal in a way that more people can embrace and feel comfortable with. And selfishly, we all look for a way to create something that survives because that's what eases our natural survival fears. So everyone wants to leave a legacy. And I know that may sound pretentious, but really everyone is doing it in their own way. And so I think it's useful for me to be honest with myself about that's what I'm doing, but I don't do it by stressing about the numbers, but I do it by um, enjoying the process of creating. So for example, I'm working on a novel now to explain the inner mammal through a novel, because when I was a college freshman, I was forced to read a, a, a psychological novel that had such a big impact on my life. So I'm always coming up with a new uh, challenge to fit the bigger goal. What is your understanding and idea of health? What is to be healthy to you, Loretta? Um, to be healthy, um, I... Uh, <laughs> um, I, I don't torture myself with, uh, like fears of, I better do this or I'm going to die. Um, so I think it's really important to have a feeling of success about your own health rituals rather than always fearing that you haven't done enough. I'll just give you a funny example. We all know that there are endless ads for nutritional supplements. And everyone you read, they make it sound like, oh, you absolutely have to have this one. But then you read another one and you absolutely, and, and you can't take all of them. So at some point you just have to say, you know what, I'm just going to take this and not take that and just feel okay with it. And th there's a word called cognitive dissonance where you ignore information that doesn't fit your preconceptions. So my husband and I make a joke of it because he takes these supplements and I take those supplements and we can't really, you know, explain why. You just have to be at peace with, with your health decisions. And I think um, that peace is very much affected by our early experience. So whatever were the health fears of your childhood very much shape your health fears today. And um, I guess I, I sort of benefited that from that in a way because I grew up in a very unhealthy family. So maybe anything I did felt better. I don't know. Like I, I feel healthier than where I came from. Um, uh, whereas a lot of people torture themselves with, you know, especially like my parent died at this age or I'm never going to be unhealthy the way they were unhealthy, and, right. and they end up in a treadmill. What are some of the greatest misconceptions about happiness? So I think the big one is the idea that the healthcare system can give you happiness. <laughs> um, but beneath that is always that when you're not happy, that it's the system's fault, that the system can make you happy. Right. And behind that is the belief that 
you should be happy all the time and other people are happy all the time and somehow you're missing out. So that's what was so mind-blowing for me when I first understood how the happy chemicals work in animals and why they're not meant to be on all the time and that other people are not getting them all the time. (laughs) And um, that brings me to um, the question about the uh, Inner Mammal Institute. So talk to me for a moment about the inspiration to create that institute. So, um, I was, um, for many years, as I said, a teacher and a parent, and I thought my students would be happy all the time and my kids would be happy all the time because I would not repeat the quote unquote mistakes of the past that every generation thinks they're not going to do whatever it is that they accuse someone else of doing. And lo and behold, my students were not happy and motivated, and my kids were not happy and motivated. And so that led me to keep looking for more information. And I would read little bits of information about the animal brain. And when I connected the dots, it was so easy to see how we inherited our brain chemistry from earlier mammals and why it's not designed to make us happy. It's designed to motivate survival behavior. So I started writing books about that. And after the first book, I I couldn't, my first website had the name of my first book. And then with the second book, I thought I needed an umbrella that uh, would explain all of my resources rather than just the name of the book. And so I looked for a name that explained the deeper mission. And that's it, innermammalinstitute.org. So you wrote the book, Tame Your Anxiety, Rewiring Your Brain for Happiness. So talk to me about the purpose of writing this book. So uh, most of my work has focused on the happy chemicals rather than the unhappy chemicals. But needless to say, I got requests because so many people are focused on the unhappy chemicals for a good reason is That's what they're designed to do, is to command your attention, to drag your attention away from whatever makes you happy. Like if a gazelle is eating grass and it smells a lion, it's only going to survive if it stops focusing on the grass and starts focusing on the lion. So that's why you could have a perfectly good life with one little thing bothering you, and that's where your brain goes. So that's the point of the book, of understanding and redirecting that. My other question, initial questions about your book is about the word tame. So why did you choose that word and not reduce, ease, lower, and anxiety? Um, Well, probably you understand it's because that's a word used in the context of animals. So... All of the stuff you do in your verbal brain, all of the debating and philosophizing doesn't really stop your animal brain from going back to threatened feelings. So how do you tame an animal? So the reality is that in the state of nature, an animal lives with threat all the time. An animal can't say, well, I'm not going out until you get rid of those lions, but it has to live in a world full of lions. So it has to... (laughs) To, to tame its survival fears. And as I explain in the book, someday a gazelle has to drink at the water hall next to the lion that ate its child. So it has to meet its survival needs 
and it has to live with threat and manage its awareness of threat. And that's what I mean by taming your anxiety. So how is anxiety different from stress, worry, and all the other similar feelings? Um, a, a lot of this is fads in media and fads in psychology. So as you know, fads come and go. And if you live long enough, there's an expression called the crisis of the month, right? Mm, So (laughs) everyone is um, trying to make their career around uh, discovering and then solving a new crisis. Um, Anxiety is a disease word, which means it can be a diagnosis that qualifies you for free treatment. So that word has um, come, excuse me, that word has come to the fore for that um, very practical reason. The word stress um, was uh, focused on, well, first, I I have a blog on this on my website. A hundred years ago, um, cortisol, what we call the stress chemical in animals was discovered. And it was found that when your cortisol turns on, it triggers this wide range of different physical responses. One response in your kidneys, one response in your skin, one response in your stomach, another in your sex organs. And the researcher said to himself, how would one hormone create such a huge variety of responses? And the answer was simple, is that all of those responses help you run when you're chased by a predator. And so this is how our body works, is that one chemical, whether it's a happy chemical or an unhappy chemical, creates a wide range of responses that help you meet a particular survival need. Now, that it became a trendy thing in the 50s, 60s, 70s to talk about stress in a way that combines um, medical, physical understanding with political fads. So then it became a dogma to blame society for your stress, blame your boss for your stress and externalize it, which then makes you a victim that your boss is hurting your stomach. Society is making you sweat and not taking responsibility for your feelings, which then disempowers you when you lose your power to manage those feelings. So that's why I was so excited when I discovered the animal perspective, because after uh, spending so much of my life in the academic perspective of externalizing and blaming society, Mm. I saw that it just didn't work. You mentioned taking responsibility. This is one of the, um, you call them surprisingly small triggers. So surprisingly, you say in your book, Surprisingly, big cortisol surges can spiral from surprisingly small triggers. And then you have all these triggers, one, two, about five of them you mentioned. That relates to the uh, introduction story that you tell, the situation that you went through. So I absolutely love this idea of going back, tapping into our own power and not blaming others or anything for that matter, taking responsibility. That's a huge message. from my perspective and from you. If I could explain some of uh, the small triggers, the one in the book was, if you try to close your sock drawer <laughs> and you can't close, <laughs> you get so upset. 
And then said, okay, today is the day I'm going to clean my sock drawer. But then when you try to do that, you get even more upset because every sock you look at reminds you of the reason why you can't stand to let it go. You look for another place to put it, but then that upsets you. So that's just an example. Uh, you said in your book, I changed a powerless feeling to a powerful feeling by focusing on the power I had. So my first question, the basic one is, what is your own definition of power? What is to be powerful to you? So the power you have is where you focus your brain. I'm sure you've heard this a lot. And where you focus your energy, what you do with your next step. So if you are always focused on messages that tell you you're powerless, you're giving your attention to that and then you're feeling bad, so then you're having less energy. But if you focus on something, <clears throat> excuse me, that you have power over, then your happy chemicals are released, you take action, then you feel good about what you've done, you take more action. If you don't feel good about what you've done, then you have the power to adjust your action. But as you keep stepping toward a goal, that's what triggers more happy chemicals and gives you that sense of aliveness, which is, I think, your power. And I wonder why it's so common and so easy for us to focus on the negative. Yeah. So this is the subject of the book before the one right, you're mentioning, right. which is called The Science of Positivity, Stop Negative Thought Habits by Changing Your Brain Chemistry. So the simple reason that we focus on the negative, like I said, is because it design, it's designed to get your attention. Because if you smell a lion and you say, I'd rather keep eating because I'm hungry, then the lion will eat you. So we could not be descended from ancestors who refused to honor their own alert system. So we evolved a brain that honors its own alert system. But our alert system then goes off too often. True. <laughs> so, um, yep. so that's what, um, once you understand your alert system and how it got wired, then you can rewire it and then you don't have to focus on every alert as if it's a real emergency. I read in your book something about anxiety will not work on verbal comments like words. Why using words doesn't work when it comes to anxiety? So there's a funny book called Everybody Went to the Mall Without Me. And you can imagine like the bad feeling that you have when you're not invited to participate in something. And you tell yourself, I shouldn't let that bother me. And I've done this myself where I tell myself that shouldn't bother me, but it does bother you. And as much as you have a higher consciousness and you think it doesn't bother you, you don't want to let it bother you, you're not consciously feeding it, why does it still physiologically sort of give you a physical threatened feeling? It triggers cortisol and it's armor, you know, you're armoring against a threat. And the reason is because cortisol connects neurons so you feel threatened when you see something that threatened you in the past. And the size of that cortisol pathway depends on 
how big the threat was in your past, how often it was repeated, and how young you were. So everyone listening can think about their own cortisol pathways and figure out like these are your triggers and you have a, a tendency to have a big response when that happens. And when it does, just words, just saying, oh, that doesn't bother me. I don't care about that. You know, <laughs> right, your, your right. body, and then you're going to let it come out some other way. So right. it's better to have other activities that you can do while that cortisol is surging. And it takes about, I explain more, but let's say 20 to 40 minutes for your body to use up a lot of that cortisol. And during that time, you're better off doing something fun and something that uses your body and your mind together. So you don't just stew because stewing is your brain is telling you to look for negatives. Like when a gazelle smells a lion, its first step is not to run because then it might accidentally run toward the lion. So its first step is to gather information. So our big brain the cortex is designed to gather information to help out our mammal brain. So when I feel threatened, my big brain looks for threat signals. And you can be really good at finding threat. And that's why, like, if you think someone's mad at you, then you look for evidence that they're mad at you, and you find more and more evidence, or whatever it is that your trigger is. And you're right about that. It doesn't matter how even uh, conscious we are about all this and all the, the practices, like I do meditation and a lot of these spiritual practices, it still happens. <laughs> oh, if you don't mind my mentioning, I did yoga for 10 years. And at this, this yoga teacher was constantly talking about her stress. <laughs> so, <laughs> and other students also, it's like, it's like the glue that, and that's the other big theme in my book, The Science of Positivity. Negativity is the glue that bonds people. So when people get together and talk about their stress, they feel a momentary release and the social bonds feel good. But then you have to keep feeling stressed to keep being one of the guys. If you start right. feeling like calm and confident, then you're not one of the guys anymore. Yes. Hmm. And you get rewarded for your pain. But if you mm. feel good and take new horizons, then you may be triggering their negativity and they won't like it. So unconsciously, you gravitate toward the negative. What do we do, Loretta, in this case? How do we break that pattern? So the good thing is to understand our power to build new neural pathways. And that's a solution to everything. Every time something, excuse me, <clears throat> Every time something frustrates you to know I can build a new neural pathway, what pathway would I like? How can I design it consciously? And how can I feed my brain a new experience repeatedly? Because that's what it takes to build a new pathway. And in adulthood, it takes a lot of repetition, as much repetition as it takes to learn a foreign language, wow. which is unfun. How do we do that without breaking the pattern without breaking the relationships and the connections around us. <laughs> yeah. So when you say without breaking the pattern, it's indeed true that the old circuit will always be there. So how can you do it? So your brain is always focused on rewards. And the biggest reward is relieving a threat. So um, 
you can find ways to reward yourself for taking the new step. And you can also focus on the way that your new step relieves threats. And then if you fear that you'll be isolated, like when animals stick with the herd, they would really rather go to greener pasture because then they don't have to fight over food and eat food that's been trampled and peed on by their herd mates. But then when they go to greener pasture, they feel like a predator is going to eat them because predator does eat the isolated individual. So when you make that decision consciously, you say, I am always choosing between taking one step toward a greener pasture or one step toward the herd. And I'm making that choice. So you don't have to feed yourself with this torture that I have to do what everyone else does or else they'll hate me. But you could say, I'm going to greener pasture when I see that it's safe and I'm making that choice. And if the people I know don't want to come with me, then I'll find new people in the new pasture. Mm. You mentioned something interesting in your book. You said, we anticipate pain in order to prevent it. We can end up anticipating a lot of pain in our quest for survival. True. Talk to me for a moment about the common triggers, uh, cortisol triggers. I know you mentioned one, disappointment is one of them. Public speaking, that's a common one, and disappointment. Uh, talk to me about disappointment for a moment and the other triggers out there. Sure. So anticipating pain is a healthy, natural thing. So if you imagine our cavemen ancestors, they had a fire going all the time. They had lots of little toddlers running around the fire. <laughs> um, in the modern world, like we're constantly protecting our children. We don't want them to learn from touching fire uh, because in the modern world, you know, you can't learn about not running into the street by getting run over. But our brain is designed to learn from pain. So when you touch the rocks around the fire, that hurts so much that you pull your hand back and the next time your hand goes near a fire, you have that pathway and a bad feeling cortisol surges in advance of the pain of the action and you pull your hand back. So that's what cortisol is designed to do. But yet in the modern world, we just have so many be carefuls <laughs> that, um, you know, we're like, I might do that wrong. I might do that wrong. I might do that wrong. So disappointment is such an important one of them. So I use the example, let's say you're a lion. And if you watch nature videos, you see that lions miss most of the time. And in the nature video, like they go for 55 minutes of a whole documentary without catching one animal. And in real life, they can go for a whole week without food. Uh, they don't catch anything. So when a lion runs after a gazelle and the gazelle gets away, that's disappointing. And that disappointment is literally a survival threat because the lion is hungry and because a lion can only catch a gazelle if it runs on a full tank of energy because it takes so much energy to catch the gazelle. So now the lion has used up half of its tank and hasn't caught anything. So that's what cortisol is at, disappointment. Like that lion would say, I just want to keep running after this gazelle because I don't want to start over. 
And it, but if it does that, it'll starve to death because the gazelle has already gotten away. So cortisol of disappointment is that bad feeling that says, you better give up. You better stop investing more energy in this chase in order to find a more promising opportunity. So that's the realistic, valuable aspect of disappointment and cortisol. But in, in modern life, like let's say you're five years old and you think you're going to get a pony for Christmas and you don't get a pony, um, but you think everybody else is getting a pony or like you've already told your friends you were getting a pony. So that kind of disappointment, you know, consciously it's not a real survival threat, but that's the idea. And uh, other examples, like if you had your heart set on doing a certain thing with your life or if you're mirroring family members who focus a lot on disappointment. I do have another question about supplements and food. Could they somehow tame our anxiety or help? So here's, here's the way I explain it. If you have bad nutrition, yeah. then it's hard to manufacture the happy chemicals. And also if you have bad sleep, it's hard to manufacture the happy chemicals because in your sleep is when you manufacture the reserves so they're ready to be released at appropriate moments. So um, if you um, have an improvement, if you have a good diet, you're not going to relieve anxiety by constantly worrying that your diet isn't good enough. Right. Like, I'm already eating kale, but maybe I should eat more kale and get a better brand of kale and preach to everyone I know that they should be eating kale. You know what I'm saying? Where, yeah. I live in, <laughs> where I live in Northern California, I mean, people can just obsess to the point where they're creating more anxiety about their diet than they're relieving. And the reason we do that is because our cortisol pathways are built from past experience. So if you have a past experience where you had a bad diet and you now want to, you, you improved it and you're saying, oh, that's the only way to be happy is to keep improving your diet. Or if you had maybe a family member who suffered ill effects from a bad diet. So whatever built your pathways, tells you what to focus on. But again, you could build new pathways if you are over-focusing on something to the point of anxiety. I love the way you say, the way you put this, that making peace with our inner mammal. There's um, a lot of um, books that suggest that your inner mammal is like the bad guy. And you right. got to fight it. Yeah. And yeah. then the other books that suggest that your talking brain is the bad guy and you right. got to fight it. <laughs> True. So anytime you're fighting part mm, of yourself, right. you know, it's sort of like a toddler, you're going to resist. If you try, I say, if you try to squelch your inner mammal, it feels like you're trying to kill it, you know, and then it gives you more threat messages. So we're almost at the end. I do have a few more questions for you. The ending questions. Would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book? Um, yeah, well, I always add something about social comparison, because this is a great example of everything we talked about. So first, 
in your higher brain, you can say, well, social comparison is wrong, so therefore, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to care about it. But you do care about it because all mammals care about it. And the reason is that it has survival value in the animal world. So we have inherited a brain that is constantly comparing us to others and um, trying to get a little bit ahead because that spreads your genes in the state of nature, so your brain rewards it. But if you don't get a little bit ahead, that's a disappointment and your brain sees it as a survival threat, even though you're way too evolved to think that way consciously. So yeah. this is people are doing this all the time and they're feeling very bitter about what they think others are getting. And when you know that you've created that feeling yourself, then you have the power to constantly notice it and redirect it. But if you think that that is forced on you in the way that many people say, they, they're putting me down rather than I'm putting myself down by comparing myself to them unfavorably in my own mind. So then right. you take back your power. So my final questions, how do you define success these days? What is to be successful to you? Well, um, to stimulate my own dopamine. So I know that I need to set goals that I can reach. Now, if they're too easy, of course, then they doesn't feel, doesn't excite your dopamine. But if it's too hard, then you never get the dopamine. So I try to set realistic goals. The other thing is variety. If you're always running after the same thing, then you get bored because dopamine is stimulated by variety. So in my case, I'm what I mentioned about writing a novel, because that's variety for me. I was also focused on having my work translated into other languages. So new, new goals come about, and I try to consciously always have a goal that I can be moving toward. And even if we have a, a bigger goal, it's a great idea, as you suggest in your book, to break them into small steps so they are achievable and realistic, right? My last question is, what are three things about life that you know for sure as of today? Um, so the first thing is that the brain is wired by experience. And this is like so obvious and yet is so widely ignored. So when people have a tendency, they want to think it's genes, they want to think it's... Um, inborn talent, there's all different um, expressions used for it, or they want to blame society. But it's so easy to see the parallel between whatever turns on your positive and negative surges today and things that happened to you when you were young. So in my book, Science of Positivity, I have short biographies of real life people and I explain what happened in their childhood so you can see how that works. Anyone you're interested in, find out about their childhood and you'll say, oh my God, they're just repeating their childhood. Right. It's so easy to see in other people. So oh, so that's the first thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so the second thing, so I know that I, I need to consciously take a break. So the funny example, um, so I have a two-year-old grandchild, and people who are around little kids, you know that um, they, if they get too tired, they can't sleep. They'll just scream and go wild, but they, <laughs> then they won't relax or 
the parent can't pull back enough to, to let them, you know, cry it out. And so um, the idea is how can you relax before you get overwound up? And um, it's sort of like, you know, our generation learned that you need to drink water consciously because if you wait till you're thirsty, you're going to forget. Mm, so yeah. it's sort of the same with relaxing. It's like you need to take a break before you're a wreck. <laughs> right. I like that. <laughs> so, um, so the third thing, let's see, what do I know for sure? Um, oh, so um, relationships are hard. <laughs> it's always easy to blame the other person. And in the modern world, they're always giving you unrealistic expectations about this perfect relationship. And a good partner should do this and they should do that and they should do that. And I think many people are alone today because no partner could ever live up to the unrealistic expectations that have been created. And for example, if I would discuss my relationship with other people, they would say, oh, they, they shouldn't do that and you shouldn't allow them, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So, so, um, <laughs> so my, my feeling is that relationships are worth preserving and yeah. it's worth being realistic. And once I can see myself as a mammal, then I can see them as a mammal who was once, and then I can be right for me and they can be right for them. By understanding oneself, we are able to understand others, right? Beautiful. But also that others are not necessarily like us. Yeah, that's one of the things that I noticed with the human body, being a human body for 44 years, it's very complex. So the more I see that within myself, then the more compassionate I become around my husband and my family in general, everyone, because I know that it's very challenging to be in a human body with all these chemicals and yeah. everything else that we don't understand the mystery yeah. too. And even apart from like my husband making me happy, it's like I could give up, stop trying to make him happy, you know, yeah. because I could respect his ability to choose what makes him happy. Thank you so much, Loretta, for your fun and meaningful presence, your wisdom, sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, and the work you do. Beautiful work. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you. Nice to see you again. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Sure. So everything is at innermammalinstitute.org, innermammalinstitute.org. And there's uh, lots and lots of free resources and information about all of my books, including I have a new book coming out not until September called Status Games, Why We Play and How to Stop. Mm, wonderful. I'll have that link on your podcast profile, too. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Loretta Bruning and her work, please visit innermammalinstitute.org. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now. <laughs>